This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked. My name is Mike Freeland, but I'm sure you know that already by now. We've already read five chapters uh, with each other in the uh, Sabu book. It's been a while since we put out a chapter. I do appreciate you guys being patient with me. Hope everybody's having a great holiday season and uh, had a very wonderful holiday spent with family and friends. It, uh, it's time to get back to the grind. Get back to not only overbooked, but get back to everything that uh, is part of our normal everyday routine now that the holiday season is quickly winding down. But once again, thank you for following us and subscribing and listening to the book. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people who've listened to the book so far and have said that they really enjoy it. So uh, if you enjoy it, then, then continue listening, and uh, hopefully we can uh, all enjoy several more chapters of the Sabu book before all is said and done. All right, so if you're following along, we are now in Chapter 6, and this chapter is entitled WWF Tryout. After Japan, I started up with Extreme Championship Wrestling. Now, before I even get into that massive subject in that part of my life, I have to first mention that I was a blip on the radar in New York early on. The first few months I was working for ECW, I was bringing a whole new style to the company, so immediately my influence was helping put the promotion on the map. This little promotion was coming out of nowhere, and ECW was gaining buzz, as a lot of other promotions started noticing. We were becoming viable. We were becoming an alternative to that cartoony product known as the WWF. Now, more people were watching ECW than we had imagined that was ever possible. Now, what I didn't know was that Big Brother was watching too. Because Vince McMahon had pretty much taken over the entire wrestling industry at this point, the territories were pretty much all dead. And from what I understand now, Vince had his eye on a new extreme world, and it looked like we were going to be actually competition. You know, other than WCW, there was nobody really out there that he continued to look at as a threat, and I don't think he liked the idea of some assholes in Philadelphia coming to take a piece of his pie. Now, for me, taking the ECW road looked like it could be quite possibly paying off for me. I knew I was catering to a different demographic of hardcore fans who really liked the realism in their wrestling. Sure, there was WCW, but there was no longer offering that NWA wrestling-style product. Vince was starting to mirror all of that, and Ted Turner was doing the same thing, so really no one was putting out anything that was different. ECW started to sell out arenas, and Paul Heyman recognized that I was bringing the tables in. You know, by going through them, of course. It didn't take a genius to realize that I would be on top of the card. And because of that, Paul did just that, and he started paying me really well. This is when Vince McMahon started to notice some wrestler named Sabu. 
Now, at some point in 1994, the phone rang, and it was J.J. Dillon. He left a message on my answering machine. Yes, he was the very same famous J.J. Dillon that was a manager of the Four Horsemen from NWA and WCW, and he'd been paid and bought for by the WWF. J.J. was now acting as a booker for Vince. Now, I had already drunk the ECW Kool-Aid and had no real desire to work for New York. But, coincidentally, J.J. also had been trained by my uncle, and because of that, I at least had to give him a call back. Hello, Terry, J.J. said. First off, I just wanted to tell you that uh, me and your uncle, we, we go way back. Not knowing really what to say to that, I responded with the first pleasantry that I could think of. Uh, that's nice. Yes, good man, he said. Anyhow, I called to ask you. Uh, we wanted to make you an offer for a tryout in New York. I asked, is it paid? Well, yes, it is. What's the pay? Being a little offset by the idea that maybe I was more interested in a payday than a potential opportunity for working for the biggest wrestling promotion in the world, there was a long pause before he answered. Uh, 300 a night. Could I do four? A few weeks later, I traveled to the land of the Giants. I pulled up in my rental car and headed to the locker room. When I walked in, I saw it was all true. The dressing rooms were crawling with massive bodies that made some of the ECW guys look like midgets. A few of the really big guys eyeballed me as I rolled in carrying my gear bag and looking for a safe corner. The thing about it was, I was not there to steal anyone's spot. In the unlikely event that I did think about sticking around, if for any reason, I would create my own spot. A smaller guy like me wasn't going to steal any big guy's spot on the show. I could never be bigger than any of those guys or wrestle like they did, but I figured if I wrestled my own style, I wasn't really competing with other guys. I was offering something new, something different. Either way, those guys didn't know that I was basically there for a payday. I had already bought into Paul Heyman's pipe dream and really thought that that was the place for me to be. The first night I went at the start of the show to work against Scott Taylor, a.k.a. the guy who would formerly known as Scotty Too Hotty from Too Cool. Now, before the match, I talked to Vince about what I could and could not do. I knew my style was not everybody's taste, especially in the bright, flashy cartoon world. I will admit I was a little intimidated by him at first, but I didn't let my shyness stop me. Knowing it was quite possible that he had never seen one of my matches before, I explained to him some of the things that I did. He didn't buy into me using tables and chairs, but he did give me the green light to do all the wild stuff off the ropes and outside of the ring that I wanted. My guys told me you do different stuff. I want to see an example of what you can do, he said. They decided to put me against Scotty Too Hotty, which he, Scotty was a great technical wrestler, and it was perfect for me to show off what I knew about my basics to Vince and his team. However, I don't think that Scotty understood all the crazy stuff I was proposing to do. So he kept that kind of quiet until our match. And we also had to keep it somewhat simple. The next day, Vince came up to me and offered me a job. I guess only seeing one or two little bits of that Sabu flavor thrown into a match was good enough for him. I was taken back by the quick offer without really knowing what to say or do. I felt the urge to stall a little. I wanted him to really see what my style was about. What I did last night wasn't exactly me, I told him. It just kind of worked out, I said. 
I'd like for you to see more of what I can do, maybe with somebody else. Vince got the hint. You did just fine out there. I liked it. But if you want to show me something else, something worth buying, it sounds good to me, Vince replied. Tonight, we'll put you out there with somebody else. So that night, they gave me Owen Hart. Now, Owen Hart was just incredible. In Calgary Stampede Wrestling, he had worked with people from all over the world. He knew I was an innovator and had some elements of the Japanese style and maybe some traces of actually Lucha Libre. So when I described what I wanted to do in my second WWF tryout match, Owen got it. He immediately understood what I wanted to do, and he was all about it. Our match that night opened the show, and the shirts and ties were all in the back watching. There was a full house at the monitor, and everything came off without a hitch. Then we were done. I felt like we both did very well. When I made it back to the locker room, Brett was the first one to come up to me. I was talking with him and Owen, and he stopped and shook my hand. That was really great, he said. I've been hoping someone like you would come along. Brett continued to say how good we were together, and he was very happy with that match. Brett was definitely a leader in the locker room at this point, so that meant a lot to me. While he was looking at me favorably, it's funny though, most of the other guys in the locker room were still giving me that evil eye. The thought back came to me, hmm, about what it was to be a professional wrestler in a WWF locker room. You needed to protect your spot. Guys didn't want to take personal time off, even if they had a serious injury, because by the time you got back, somebody else would be working instead of you. It's all about competition. It was fear of the unknown. I think a lot of guys may have looked at me as a threat because I was standing in front of them and I was doing something entirely different that they hadn't done. I looked different. I wrestled different. You know, the thing about it is, if I decided to go there, I wasn't looking to take over and bump people out of their spots. I figured I would just be another guy. I'd make my own spot, something that had never existed before. Vince offered me a job again after the Owen match. I told him I really needed to think about things, but he insisted I stick around for another night and another payday. So I did. The next night I worked with Scott Taylor again, but this time we worked some more of my crazy style in. The next morning, Vince met with me in a hotel office and offered me a gimmick. We don't really want to hire names right now, he explained. We're, we're looking really to make our own product. What he proposed was 250000 to me to take on the Sultan gimmick. The idea was that I would dress up almost like an evil version of the genie, but with a mask over my nose and mouth. Knowing that talking wasn't my strong suit, the idea was that the Sultan didn't even have a tongue, and the mask would ensure that the proposed character wouldn't talk at all either. I was on the fence. Jumping on board with the WWF meant that I wouldn't be able to work the big shows over in Japan anymore, and I also knew I wouldn't be able to continue with ECW, which actually seemed promising at the time. I had heard a lot of horror stories about how you would come to New York and then you would eventually get lost in the shuffle. In ECW, I knew everything that was happening. I was set up to be a main event player in the promotion that was just starting to take off. To me, the potential of that was great. Vince called me back a few weeks later to think about it. I called him up one day and almost without any hesitation, I told him I had one more question. 
I knew you had talked about having a manager for me as this Sultan guy, I said. Any idea who you would be using? He mentioned Bob Backlund, then he threw in talks of using the Iron Sheik as my uncle. I thanked him for the opportunity and said I would call him back, but that call never happened. Booking the Iron Sheik as my uncle, that was a huge symbol of disrespect to me at that time. My mindset was that changing my name and modifying my look was one thing. They wanted to own me and the likenesses and to promote me for merchandise reasons. I was okay with this to some degree. However, the Iron Sheik to be my uncle? I told my friends what they had told me. I told them it was plain ignorant. If my uncle would have been seen there with me and him on TV, oh, that would be bad news. Seeing me hang out with a cheap WWF welfare ripoff of the Sheik would not have gone over well with my family. And if he saw that, Ed Farhat would have probably died from a heart attack years earlier than he originally did. Today, when I look back at what could have been, sometimes I wish I had taken the offer. I could have maybe kept the Iron Sheik out of my deal by negotiating something. I don't know. I just wonder what had happened if I had actually taken it. Anyhow, it's a good thing Vince didn't already have that expensive custom costume made up for me. There was no way my replacement, who was Rikishi, would have ever fit his chunky ass into it. Either way, after that tryout, I knew where I was going. I was going to stay in ECW. One day, we were still putting the building blocks of ECW together. Paul Heyman brought me over to his house, and he put a tape into the VCR. Something on that tape captivated me. It was wrestling. But it wasn't like any wrestling I'd ever seen before. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing in the ring. The same tape also had two comedians taking over pro wrestling matches. They were making fun of the wrestlers who were destroying their bodies. When I first started watching, I was laughing at all of it, but slowly I was getting more and more pissed at their insults. But then stopped. I stopped hearing what they had to say, and all I did was watch. It all seemed to have to stop. On one screen, I finally saw something that drowned all of the sound out. I was mesmerized by one person coming to the ring in Japan. The fans there took one look at him and would just scatter. As I watched, there came this enigmatic force that I've never seen before. It was a real wild man, someone who invoked fear in the hearts of the audience. Look at this, Paul said to me. You see the fear in all their eyes? Paul leaned over to me where I was sitting. He squinted and rubbed his chin. He smiled. I seriously hadn't seen anything like this before, especially not on television, since the original Sheik and Bruiser Brody or, or maybe Abdul the Butcher. As soon as that famous wrestler made into the ring, Paul said, That's Sabu. That guy is it. I sat down and watched in awe. He was doing the things that nobody I had previously seen had done. He wasn't just a brawler, but he could wrestle. He could fly in the ring, and he was innovative with chairs. He was using them as weapons, and not only swinging them in the traditional way. Sabu was so different that he was using a chair as a springboard to actually hurl himself into the audience. Now, remember, this was early in the 90s. At this point, WCW and WWF were more kid-friendly. Wrestling was so toned down that nothing remotely dangerous was ever going to make it on a TV anywhere. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I said to Paul, watch this. Sabu pulled out a table, and the rest is history. 
Sabu single-handedly changed wrestling forever after that. His usage of tables was like life before the internet. Tables, matches, chants, TLC, all of that stuff was not around before the suicidal, homicidal, genocidal man named Sabu. The scars on his body are a testament of the word hardcore. His uniqueness is something only paralleled along the lines of an Andre the Giant. It's absolutely no exaggeration when I say that Sabu carried the early years of ECW on his scarred up back. I personally held a towel over a massive wound he had sustained as a doctor said to him, you need to go to the hospital right now. No, I'm okay, he replied. Just superglue it. This is what he would say to medical professionals. Superglue it. It wasn't uncommon for him to say that at all. The doctor wouldn't believe me. Sabu actually needed 140 stitches that night, but chose just to glue the hole shut. And he went back to the ring, and he did that the very next day. He continued to wrestle that way every week. To totally understand how much of an impact Sabu had made, you got to go back and watch any sport before the game was played as it actually is played today. Imagine basketball without the slam dunk. Imagine football as it was. It's just a running game. Now imagine wrestling without Sabu. Sabu is one of the most iconic wrestlers that changed the wrestling business forever. And now, with the rest of this book, you'll finally read about how he built the ECW block and how everything he did had a place. This was a quote by Tommy Dreamer. This is a quote and a message from Sabu to Tommy. Tommy, thank you so much for your story and your kind words, but I just don't get it. We didn't start with ECW on the same day, and I cold called Todd. Was there really a private Sabu tape viewing with Paul Heyman? Laugh out loud. That's going to do it for Chapter 6. Very, very interesting. So Sabu talks about working with Paulie and feeling like ECW was really becoming something. And then obviously getting some tryouts for WWF. We found out that his tryouts with WWF were with Scotty Tuhati, two matches with him, one with Owen Hart, his conversation with Bret Hart, the way the WWF locker room perceived him at that time, the fact that Vince wanted to offer him a contract after his very first WWF tryout in 94, the fact that they wouldn't offer him $250,000 a year, but the Salton gimmick was something that just really didn't appeal to Sabu, therefore, he went back to ECW and they continued their build of their company. I thought it was interesting. The last part of this chapter is Tommy speaking to Paul Heyman in a private viewing of Sabu, and basically, Tommy, you know, giving so much credit to Sabu for everything that he had done and how ECW really needed someone like this who was very much an innovator and could mix styles of lucha libre and Japanese style wrestling and strong style but he was also very charismatic and he could fit into the element of some of the larger promotions say a WWF or a WCW we also found out that Sabu really did miss the NWA style of wrestling we did find out also that J.J. Dillon was trained by uh, the Sheik um, and there was a, a tie there and that's really the only reason why Sabu even gave the WWF an opportunity for a tryout. I mean, other than the pay. So, it's going to do it for Chapter 6. Hope you enjoyed it. By all means, please continue to listen, download the show, 
and we will see you next time with Chapter 7 of Overbooked. The world of NLW Radio never stops. 